Welcome to episode 26 in the third season of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and with me today is the Center's lawyer in Quebec, Samuel Bachon, who is filling in for our regular host, John Carpe, the president and founder of the Center, who is somewhere else, not here anyway. So, hello, Samuel. Hello. Since you're sitting in the big chair here at the podcast, I might as well get you to start off by commenting on some of the big Justice Center news from the past week. Now, there was, of course, the rearrest of Tamara Leach, a Justice Center client, one of the leaders of the Freedom Convoy in February, for allegedly breaching her bail conditions. I should let people know that because of the Justice Center's intimate connection with the case, we are under some advice and restriction on what we can and cannot say at the present moment. So maybe we'll table that for just a little later. Sam, uh, we'll get you to start off with the other big news, which we received last week. And that is the standing that has been granted to the Justice Center at the federal inquiry into the invoking of the Emergencies Act to shut down the Freedom Convoy. Give us your take on this. Well, JCCF has a standing in, in two ways. So first, uh, as the JCCF, it will be, um, let's say, sharing a, a spot with two other uh, organizations, considering that the JCCF has been involved in uh, defending uh, and advising uh, persons who were at the, the convoy. And there's also our lawyers, uh, Eva Chipyak and uh, Keith Wilson, who um, have applied for uh, Tamara Leach and the uh, the convoy organizers, who obviously got standing because they are the first ones involved, as you can see. And, and the current events do confirm that, you know, those things have uh, remote consequences. So uh, interesting times indeed. But yes, the JCCF will be well represented over there. Uh, it was uh, recognized by the commissioner that there was a direct interest in the matter and uh, that the, our people's testimony was uh, necessary in order to get to the bottom of things. So we're very happy about that, obviously, and I'm... Uh, you know, um, anxious to, to see uh, the whole thing unfold. Are you yourself participating? I am not. Personally, I have to say um, I'm the primary external counsel uh, of JCCF in the province of Quebec. So I have my own law firm, which is LIS, uh, and I do uh, collaborate very closely with JCCF in many files. But I am not one of the uh, privileged uh, few who are working uh, or who will be appearing on that committee. Though uh, I, I will be listening in uh, in real time, that's for sure. Well, I noticed that Alberta had standing. The reason I was asking, I was just wondering whether you, know, you would ask for standing on behalf of the province as well, but uh, <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> well, the day, the day that the, the Attorney General for Quebec will ask me to <laughs> apply for them uh, is the day, as we say in French, les poules des dents, when chicken will have teeth. So right. that will not be happening soon. <laughs> I don't suppose. Now, regarding the convoy, you came on at a pretty uh, heavy time, actually, from what I recall. What was the first file? The first file that I noticed you on was on the tax uh, when Quebec said they were going to tax the unvaccinated. 
Yes, mm-hmm. well, the, the the government, in its usual very uh, gracious manner, threatened the Quebec unvaccinated to be uh, slapped with a unvax tax. So we uh, obviously we did research and analysis, and we issued a few statements respecting the uh, obvious unconstitutionality of such uh, uh, projected measure. And uh, eventually it was just thrown out. The the idea was abandoned by uh, the government in place. And uh, the spin doctors in Quebec City made it look like it was a generous gesture, which is somewhat ironic, but that's what happens. So we're happy there's no unvaxxed tax uh, for people who exercise uh, fundamental freedom. That's the, the story. Okay, well, it, obviously an auspicious start for your career with the JCCF. And a few days after that, I was sent to Quebec City uh, for the parallel protest. So there was a freedom convoy at that point in Ottawa, and there was a smaller one in Quebec City near the parliament buildings. And it was uh, very fun, let's say a bit less tense. <laughs> which they which might in be the, uh, mounted police, I take it. <laughs> no, no, ne- not, neither the Sûreté du Québec uh, or the the local police. But local policemen were there, but just for traffic and all that. Mm. And uh, I even got a, an estimate for the number of um, uh, protesters from one of them. You know, you don't usually get that kind of chit chat, small talk with the policemen, mm. but it was very uh, relaxed in comparison, obviously. Uh, it was large, though. And one thing I noticed that it had, in comparison to the trucker convoy in Ottawa, there was a large farm component to the uh, Quebec City one, at least from the video that I saw. Was that your impression? When you say farm, you mean like in farming? As in tractors and, you know, big heavy equipment. I saw a lot of combines. and. Uh, that's funny. I didn't see many of those. So uh, maybe I wasn't in the same sector. But uh, I, I would expect that truckers as well as farmers uh, in Quebec and in the rest of Canada and North America are uh, maybe more closely or more jealous of their uh, jealous is that the, the the word in English, but they're more closely attached uh, to their uh, their own freedom. So they they are good flag bearers for a freedom movement. True, yeah, and we did have some participation of farmers, of course, in southern Alberta at the border as well. They were heavily involved there. So when I drive in the lower Laurentians, you know where I live, I can see signs uh, uh, on uh, how do you call that lawn signs or signs that are posted um, in front of people's houses and uh, in support of the freedom movement. And that's something you don't see very often uh, in our province and our region, signs like that being posted. Uh, Haven't seen that many since the days of the referendum. So 95, I was a small kid, a small child. So they seem engaged. More people seem to be engaged in this than you initially thought. Well, uh, not nearly 
uh, as as many as we would like. Uh, but uh, yes, yes. So if at some point uh, things continue to deteriorate, politically speaking and legally speaking, we'll know uh, who to turn to. Yeah, I, I think that leads us to the, a topic in a broad sense, something that we wanted to deal with during this show in our preliminary discussions. We had mentioned it. And that is, I guess, the general nature of Quebec and Quebecers with regard to freedom or the charter. I think that there might be some misunderstanding out west of how you approach it there. We saw many people, at least the way it was presented to us in the media, that you know Quebec was all on board with the lockdowns. And until we saw that parallel protest that's the way we thought it was maybe you could just tell us about how quebecers approach the charter and the notion of freedom out there it's a broad topic so let's say uh that there seems to be a tension between the history of uh freedom in in quebec and the general the generational uh issue uh mainly with the baby boomers so i'll I'll get to that later but just to say that from the outset um quebecers are uh, considered by people from the rest of canada sorry for the that phrase the roc as we say in quebec a a naval gay a a naval gazing expression as i call it um but yeah uh, we're seen as being more latin uh, and mostly because of the language itself. Um, but what I'd say is uh, that the way Quebecers uh, construe their freedom is different from that, uh, from what w- you would find in uh, English speaking countries. So one should not take, let's say, uh, social undiscipline as being a manifestation of one's will for freedom. It can be at times, but it's not the same thing. So Quebecers, for instance, <laughs> and I'm one, I'm very, you know, I'm a, a real Frenchie from the North Shore, and I grew up in French, and I work in French and all that. So I guess I can say those things, but we're bad drivers. Okay, that's why in the, uh, in the, <laughs> no, it's, it's just an example, but a good one. It's representative of, of, of the issue. So if you go uh, on the island of Montreal, you're you're prohibited from turning right uh, at a stop sign or a, a red light so because there are too many accidents okay so we're undisciplined drivers uh the rules about alcohol drinking in public or the opening hours or hours for the sale of alcoholic beverages are more relaxed than in the rest of Canada and North America um so it's it's a bit Under those aspects, it's a bit more like uh, what you'd find in in France. But uh, freedom is very different from discipline while driving a car or uh, buying beer. So here's the issue, and it's, it's my personal interpretation based on many readings I've done and long conversations I had with sociologists, for instance. Quebec... When uh, Britain took over, let's say, Canada uh, in the 18th century, uh, French Canadians turned to uh, the Catholic Church for their, let's say, social cohesion, 
political guidance and all that. And that lasted for a very long time. So you had a parallel state, basically, taking care of all the social issues, hospitals, uh, schools, and all that. And that lasted until fairly late in history. So the early 1960s. At that point, there was this quiet revolution. Okay, But the focal point of, let's say, social cohesion um the depository of you know uh, collective will just changed from the catholic church to the state so in the early 60s with jean lesage and rené lévesque and all that lévesque wasn't yet a uh, separatist openly what you had is a transfer of all those duties and responsibilities and powers from the catholic church to the province so the province took over the schools, uh, took over the hospitals, and took over energy. And you know, energy was a big thing. We're very proud of our uh, hydroelectric uh, uh, facilities up north. And, and that's fine. I, I am proud of that too. But still, a bit like Israelis uh, in uh, yeah in Israel, I... I I chatted with Barbara Kay about that, and she kind of agreed, you know. Uh, Quebecers place a lot of their hope for the future and their, their, uh, their feeling of safety, collective feeling of safety, in the state. So they started by being Catholics first, and then uh, Quebecers are, became basically statist nationalists. Nothing to do with the actual secessionist movement okay so i think what we have here uh what we saw during the covid crisis is this historical reflex that never changed actually uh of quebecers uh turning to the state to ensure their safety uh and their continued prosperity in the face of an external threat which became internal, obviously, but it's psychologically, it's an external threat. So, you know, the undisciplined aspect of the life of an average Quebecer, I say undisciplined, let's say Latin, relaxed and all that, uh, didn't uh, weigh much in the balance, didn't weigh much in the balance at that point. Mm -hmm. The, The whole, the deep, rooted reflex of French-speaking Quebecers relying on the, the state to solve big problems just kick back in. And that's what happened. And you add to that another element. People who in the 60s uh, were, let's say, um, caught up with or had a very strong need for emancipation and personal freedom and who brought about uh, a quiet revolution or or at least part of it are today, well, those are the baby boomers and today they are uh, over 60 years old and they are extremely powerful politically speaking. Okay, They are still calling the shots in big business and in government 
they are still calling the shot in the shots in the cultural industry, arts, TV, whatever. And uh, they were, and I, I'm generalizing, obviously, but you know that's basically the idea here. Um, they they were scared to death by COVID because they were actually more uh, vulnerable than most of us to the virus. So the the influence yeah. exactly the influence of that demographic stratum. Uh, in the public discourse surrounding COVID was disproportionate. Okay. I didn't actually think of that aspect in Quebec as so much as I, th I think I saw that everywhere because of course, you know, the baby boomers were, are ubiquitous still all over. The one aspect that I thought you were going to say, and I must say, I'm surprised that you didn't go back to this difference or this distinction between Quebec and Canada or France and England, which is the Roman law principles versus common law principles. Uh, did that have any influence in it? Like the Roman law is where you have the state above the law. And in the common law, of course, the, the, uh, the state is subject to the law. The law is supreme. Did that have, does that have any influence at all? Well, uh, no, it did not. Uh, that's okay. the first thing. And uh, you have, one has to keep in mind, bear in mind that in Quebec, all public law, so the law dealing with relationships between the state and individuals or corporations or whatever, uh, is, is common law. It's not civil law. It's not French type civil law. So the civil code, unless we're talking about actual civil liability of the state, Right. which relies heavily on common law principles in any event. Uh, well, the civil law will, 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 doesn't apply there. Uh, so it, although we are proud of the civil code we have, it applies to family law, contract law, uh, what, what you guys call torts, so extra-contractual liability, um, mm. those, those types of things. Uh, the civil code didn't you know, could not have had a huge impact on what happened, except to say that, at least in the civil code, the rights of the individual to one's personal and bodily autonomy are very clearly codified. So I would have expected, paradoxically, uh, that this might have been a, a stronger, uh, let's say, provided a stronger defense uh, against the overreach from or, or by government in the context of COVID. Uh, but it did not. It's it's mm -hmm. it's a for me personally a very disappointing experience. What happened? So yeah. Well, I'm from Alberta. You can imagine how disappointed we were here with our government. <laughs> Yeah, having I saw that. for freedom. Uh, another aspect where I guess I could draw something of a distinction between Quebecers and the rest of Canada is with the charter itself and mm. the constitution, the fact that Quebec didn't ratify that document. Mm. And you were, of course, out there on the protest in Quebec during the uh, parallel freedom convoy. Did you get a sense that there their relation to the charter is different 
or even generally, you know, not not having to do that protest as well? What's the relation? Well, don't forget one thing. We had a charter similar to the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms in Quebec, for Quebec, in 1975, long before the, the, the Canadian Constitution was reformed. Uh, so the Quebec Charter is not just like a human rights code. You will find codified in there and protected in a quasi-constitutional way. So practically, it's ba basically the same thing, as long as we're talking about provincial state action or municipal, local, and all that. It doesn't apply to the, the federal. But you will find codified there the same fundamental freedom. So religious freedom, freedom of uh, expression, uh, Pacific uh, Assembly, uh, Association, uh, dis uh, no discrimination uh, on I illicit motives. So, and since 1982, or depending on, on which rights we're talking, um, the, the, the construction of the Quebec Charter uh, has been basically um, adapted and, and made uh, similar to that of the Canadian Charter. So insofar as we are talking about Quebec action, so let's say the health, the COVID measures locally, which applied uh, for, for almost two years, um, well, they they were subject to the Charter. There was no non-withstanding clause in the Public Health Act of Quebec so the government did accept the risk that judges would quash the measures on a constitutional basis uh, because those health, so-called health measures, uh, were infringing upon uh, personal rights and, and uh, freedoms in a disproportionate way. The government they won, won its gamble, though, because uh, courts in Quebec and the, and the rest of Canada, unlike in the U.S., shied away from uh, issuing interim orders and stays on an immediate basis or urgent basis, this, despite very obvious infringements of personal uh, freedoms. And they preferred to say, well, we'll see on the merits in one, two, three years, uh, with the scientific, so-called scientific evidence, uh, whether those uh, measures were uh, uh, were justified. But that's that. It, it's let's say it's a meager consolation when uh, one's uh, constitutional freedoms are uh, violated. Right. Right. When you're saying constitution there, you're talking, I guess, about both constitutions then. You're talking about the Quebec. Yes, yes, I'm talking okay. broadly when I say that, because as, as I mentioned, um, personal rights and freedoms under the Quebec Charter, although they are not constitutional in the same way as the Canadian Charter, uh, they have a paramount uh, effect on uh, the, the provincial... Uh, legislation and regulations and all that and it is construed in the same way so the only thing is that if we're dealing with federal state action we have to rely either on the canadian charter or the canadian bill of rights which is also in certain respects paramount and dates back to the days of uh, pearson sorry pearson well does the quebec 
charter or constitution have that sort of escape clause that we see in the Canadian constitution that has been, yeah. I guess, the it has the demonstrably justified provision. In other words, they can overcome rights. Section 9.1, it's not worded in the same way, but it applies exactly in the same way. But still, if, you know, in cases like this one, uh, if we have to wait years before uh, the justification is, is made out, then it's it's too little too late in many instances. Uh, right. So so I, I I would personally, and I, I understand that's the state of the law in most cases, but I would personally advocate for a more robust approach by superior courts in the Federation uh, when it comes to staying on an urgent basis um, public health or other types of measures that infringe upon personal freedoms. Because if courts cannot just see an obvious and obviously unjustified infringement and sanction it uh, as as one, the, the constitutional rights become more of a, you know, theoretical a protection than a practical protection for people. How about the whole idea of bodily autonomy or personal choice in medicine? That's one that I guess a lot of what we saw before was protest against lockdowns and the restrictions on personal freedom. How about the idea of, uh, you know, uh, medical autonomy. Well, the problem we faced here is the same as in the rest of Canada. Um, I have to say again, since you know the uh, freedom uh, or personal uh, bodily autonomy, sorry, and uh, informed consent and and all those principles are codified in the civil code. I was surprised that the population in general did not re react more forcefully to the the constraints um, set up by uh, or, or enacted by the government. Because between you and me, for the government to say, well, we're not actually forcing you to take the shot is not a great argument uh, when the measures in general will, will make your life completely impossible if uh, you don't take the shot. But they, while they do not actually require you to go physically and get the shot, it's the same thing. It's a constraint enacted by the state. So uh, mm. the, the reaction was not very strong. Um, I Look, I, I think cases either in courts or in uh, public inquiries will tell us uh, in a few years um, whether the time-honored uh, principle of informed consent was generally respected by uh, health authorities and uh, medical doctors and nurses in our province. But I... I am worried uh, that you know the inf some of the information, and this is part of our Beckford and Bernier case in uh, federal court, um, the vaccine mandates on the the planes. But what worries me is that uh, many of the let's say negative aspects and worrying aspects of the treatments uh, or the the, the vaccines. Um, that were proposed to the population uh, were not hidden, technically speaking, but let's say they 
they were not the subject of uh, serious uh, disclosure and uh, warning efforts by the authorities. Something that you don't usually see if you go get any other type of treatment. You know, informed consent should not be the matter of um, uh, political opportunism. Uh, it's it's not a, a, a matter for spin doctors and uh, propagandists uh, to deal with. Uh, this is an important matter matter that should be, uh, that is the responsibility of each medical professional uh, when uh, he or she uh, proposes a, a quote-unquote treatment to, uh, to their patient. You sounded very much like Russell Brand, the comedian that had just gone off on Elmo and Sesame Street. I don't know whether you saw that clip. No. They were using, they were using Sesame Street to uh, push the booster vax, and uh, Russell Brand did a pretty good video about that. He pretty much said exactly what you said right there. So uh, there you go. You might have a, a future in stand-up comedy. No. <laughs> we'll tell that to John. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know he's listening. Yeah, I would add something uh, to my last remark. It's one thing to have rights written down in charters or civil codes or whatever. But as uh, the late uh, Antonin Scalia said on another topic, those will all stay parchment guarantees. If the broader culture is not conducive and respectful of those rights. So, for instance... I'll just take the, the example of uh, presumption of innocence. Yes, of course, a presumption of innocence uh, is a judicial principle. So you are considered not guilty until the Crown is able to demonstrate beyond any reasonable doubt that uh, you are guilty. But I believe that presumption of innocence, before being, let's say, enshrined in a charter, was a principle, uh, a, philosoph a philosophical principle, a moral principle, and um, let's say a result of uh, historically refined and um, let's say developed wisdom. So when we saw in the press, you know, stories about this guy being accused of being uh, doing this and that and this and Quickly, the culture evolved towards a presumption of guilt. And now switching back to the COVID, well, it's one thing to say you have a right to your own bodily autonomy. You can choose not to get the shot or the vaccine. But more broadly speaking, if the whole culture the, the whole social, political, regulatory setting makes it makes your life unlivable if you actually exercise that right, well, the right becomes very quickly a virtual one. It's a parchment guarantee. So it's no excuse when I hear very often law professors uh, and a uh, government spokesperson say, well, we force no one. Well, that's not the issue. You, you just don't respect the basic principle of bodily autonomy. And if you did, you would not be acting in the way you are. And it's not just a matter of eventually a court saying, well, the violation of this and this right was not constitutionally justified. 
it's a deeper problem than that. Because you, you can live, it's like the USSR. I, we're not there yet. I'm not saying we are, but it's possible to live under uh, an autocratic and dictatorial regime and still, you know, have a charter. The USSR had one, and it was much more generous than our charter, by the way. You can go on an internet and read it. It was useless, just a piece of paper, meaning nothing. Why? Because the cultural, political setting is not conducive to personal freedom. But we use that at least as a starting point, don't we? I mean, in order to either persuade people or try to enforce our rights. Uh, we use the, the parchment rights to as a starting point. Isn't that where it starts or is that where it, it ends? It's, it's a necessary part. Um, mm. And sometimes it's the last, it's the only way we, uh, the only means we have to um, vindicate rights. But as I said, you know, human beings interpret the Constitution. And since 1982, um, we, we have a charter. Many personal uh, freedoms are enshrined there and protected and guaranteed, quote-unquote. But the justification of uh, infringements on those rights by government is analyzed and assessed by human beings who grew up here for the most, for most of them, and are socialized here, and will be uh, not say influenced in a bad way, but since they're socialized here, they will introduce their perspective and a, a certain level of bias, which is unavoidable. I'm not talking about anything illegal here, or um, contrary to you know uh, professional ethics. All I'm saying is that cultural values and experience infiltrate or percolate into the law. So things that would not have been justified 10 or 20 years ago in terms of restricting free speech or bodily autonomy or the right to protest peacefully will be tolerated today simply because People our age uh, have lived under different circumstances and have been told, well, the world has changed. You know, a, a living constitution is not just a constitution that will give you incremental rights uh, throughout the, the, the decades and the centuries. It can go the other way. So progressivism can be regressivism in terms of charter law. And we're seeing it now. In terms of percolating through the culture, this is one aspect I wanted to ask you about, and that is the influences on Quebec externally as opposed to the rest of Canada. I know, in at least from what I perceive in Ontario, they, they have a sort of a reflexive revulsion to what happens in America. They don't want to be Americans. Oh, you know, they, they shun that. Alberta is known to be a little bit more friendly towards American influences. How about Quebec? In your understanding, is it more open to external influences from Europe, perhaps, or from the U.S.? I noticed you quoted Scalia, and I, of course, quoted Sesame Street. So, obviously, we're talking about some, some level of external influence here. 
Well, look, uh, if you uh, on Netflix, uh, over ninety percent of the content that is viewed by Quebecers is uh, English language. So m maybe they they use the translation on the the interface there, but the, the application. But still, it's it, it's English, uh, either Canadian or uh, UK or American content. So uh, my personal position is that unless you you get into food, wines, that sort of stuff, Quebecers are French-speaking North Americans. And I did spend a lot of times with um, lawyers who represented uh, professional uh, associations. How do you call that? Urbaro. Um, Law societies from uh, Belgium, many parts of France, uh, French-speaking uh, countries in Africa, and all that. And we are very, very different from them. To them, we are Americans who speak French. Hmm. And honestly, I share that feeling. It's not such a good thing on the linguistic uh, front, because... It's possible that Quebecers uh, do not, let's say, uh, the, the, the general uh, level of proficiency in French in Quebec is not satisfactory if one compares it to France or Belgium. But in many other respects, it's a, a guarantee of a dynamic society. We like uh, entrepreneurs, uh, self-made men. We are not very much into you know, family, old families and uh, so-called aristocracies and all that. So it's, yeah, I, I, I believe we're kind of, we're, we're more open to foreign influence, uh, foreign or American and Canadian influence that uh, many of our, you know, uh, cultural elites would like to admit publicly. Well, I know that some of my favorite companies are out of Quebec, in particular Godin Guitars. I've always been a big fan yes. of them. And, uh, yes. I don't know if they're still in Quebec, but Da Vinci Bicycles was my bicycle choice. So I know yeah. the brands. I don't know if they're still in Quebec, but you know, at least if it started here, it's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. So I, I actually know what you speak of there in terms of entrepreneurship. I've often <laughs> wished that uh, my province was uh, could emulate Quebec in that regard. Okay, well, I think it behooves us to actually talk a little bit about the elephant in the room, and that is the situation with uh, one of the clients of the Justice Center, Tamara Leach, and her rearrest. Now, there probably will be some resolution just as this, this podcast is being released, but perhaps I could get you to comment a little on that. You weren't at the Freedom Dinner, uh, but, of course, you have been witnessing this up close. Perhaps you could give us your take on that. Yes, so I was not at the Jonas uh, Award dinner. I was not, and I'm not part of the team of lawyers who represent uh, convoy, uh, either representatives or, or, or people who were involved. So um, my comments are based on publicly available information, uh, same as uh, you have access to. Uh, what I would say is that, you know, it looks like the Crown is trying to catch Ms. Leach 
uh, on a, what one would say a process crime or a technical uh, crime uh, with very little evidence here. Uh, honestly, as I saw in the media a picture and you see, you know, somebody with whom she was not supposed to communicate, apparently, in the same picture as, uh, as her. Um, and that would, according to the Crown, constitute uh, conclusive evidence of a breach of conditions. There, there are such things in legal practice as exercising one's good judgment and de minimis and uh, exercise of reasonable discretion. Okay. What, Kevin, what do you think was the reason behind the Crown asking for um, such bail conditions? Uh, the initial bail conditions those me? those regarding you know communication with other people involved uh i believe there was a an attempt to punish which i understand they're not supposed to do uh so they were trying to punish her and i think they were trying to send a strong message out to anybody else that might have a inclination to protest that they are going to come down with the full force of the law yeah, yeah, but is that acceptable? So, because because that's more of a punishment, and punishment, if there's a crime, should come at the end. So after the trial and at the sentence sentence sentencing stage. Sorry, I so I think the so well no no I I I would tend to agree with you, but it's yeah. not legitimate. The only legitimate aspect right. is if there's any illegal activity going through, you know, speech. Uh, between people who were involved, uh, the Crown wanted to prevent that. Mm -hmm. Now, do you honestly think that such alleged dangerous and criminal activity could have gone on at the dinner? No, I mean, it, it just doesn't make sense to me. It's, yeah. it's like everybody at the Crown is acting like we don't know that this is a mother of you know, uh, I don't remember how many children, but, you know, th this is not Al Capone. And and she's not Ethel Rosenberg. She's not, like, passing on nuclear secrets here. She's a lady who was there at the convoy. She's a, she's, she's a fine lady, you know. So who, the, the, the crown is, is, is treating her as if she were, you know, an enemy of the state. And bold characters there, bold red underlined characters. This makes absolutely no sense. Who is the crown attorney who thought that this was a good reason to get her back in jail? It makes no sense. It's obvious that public security was not and could not have been threatened by, by whatever went on at the Jonas dinner. So this is yeah. abuse. This is a, a egregious abuse of prosecutorial discretion, and it has to be denounced as such. And I can say that I'm not one of her lawyers. I'm not an official representative of JCCF. I'm an external counsel, and I do have, you know, my freedom of speech. And I would not, uh, you know, I, I would not shy away from this argument uh, before a, a court of law. Um if I, I, I were to defend her, which is not the case, this is an abuse of prosecutorial 
discretion. It's obvious, based on the facts we have now, that she did nothing wrong and certainly nothing to threaten public security. Right. It only makes sense in one sense, and that is it seems to be consistent with the way uh, the federal government has looked at the convoy from the beginning. Well, actually, they kind of made a modification. At first, they were a small fringe minority, and then they became this giant threat. So the prosecution yes. seems to be working along the same lines as, as that to keep it consistent, I suppose. I know how the media has treated it. The mainstream media has looked at this situation, particularly the CBC. They they so they want to parrot the line that you know these people are a dangerous threat and you know are proposing civil war, et cetera, et cetera. All these wild exaggerations. At least the Pravda and the USSR didn't cost as much as the CBC. <laughs> There's that. How is the Quebec media looking at this? Is it pretty much the same? It's the same thing. It's the same okay. thing. There's no real difference. You know, the, the political inclinations of our journalists and media uh, people at uh, Radio-Canada uh, is pretty much the same uh, as in the rest of Canada. So, unfortunately, that's the state of, uh, of media in Quebec, uh, as well as in the ROC. Um, yep. ROC, yeah. I love that. I'm going to start using that now. <laughs> Speaking of, I would say, media, I understand that uh, you're going to be starting a podcast as well, sort of an adjunct to French version of what we do here. Well, it, it, the, bar, the bar is set pretty high, so we're trying <laughs> to start something <laughs> in French. And thank you for all your... Very wise and and learned advice, uh, which I and and the team will uh, will use. Um, yeah, it's a, we're we're so one. so it will be the 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 podcast of the francophone and francophile friends of the JCCF, and mm -hmm. it should start in the next few weeks. Um, so anybody interested in that uh, and and able to understand a bit of French or willing to learn. <laughs> Well, right. Well, you're I know welcome. That John speaks it oh. semi decently, so he can. Uh, he, he speaks it very. He, he corrected me a few times. So, <laughs> okay. yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad you're getting that going. So you're going to start in a couple of weeks, and is yes. it going to be the same format as we? We only use an audio format. Are you going to be using audio, or you're going to go visual at all? Uh, I don't plan on going visual uh, soon. Um, mm -hmm. It, it takes, you know, a studio, and I'm—I don't know if I'm that handsome. I might <laughs> might need a bit to work out a bit and buy nice shirts and <laughs> that sort of stuff, and the backdrop too, and the yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so I, 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 I will not exclude that possibility. Um, I'm sure my wife would love it for me to start working out and buy nice shirts, uh, but we're we're not there yet. I'm happy to be able to you know do the podcast as we are right now, you and I, uh, with our t-shirts and. You know, mm -hmm. uh, as we say uh, in Quebec, habillé en mou. Okay. Well, I noted that uh, one of your compatriots out that way who has a sort of famous podcast, at least visually, Viva Fry, he uh, has been talking with John Fair a bit. Uh, he doesn't seem to worry too much about combing his hair. Well, at least he has hair, which is almost <laughs> not my case. <clears throat> No comment there. Look fine to me. Look fine to me. 
how about other cases beyond the COVID issue that are of concern out in your area? Yes. What other things are going on? So in the Peckford and Bernier file in federal mm -hmm. court, so that's the file in which uh, the former prime minister of uh, Newfoundland and Mr. Maxime Bernier are challenging um, the the COVID mandate uh, enacted by the federal minister of transport on planes. Mm -hmm. uh, there have been obviously uh, important developments developments lately so as you probably know uh, the the feds rolled back the mandate they suspended the mandate uh, but they they insisted on the fact that this was a suspension and that the mandates could be reenacted uh, in the fall which they probably will, honestly. Duclos, uh, Minister Duclos came out uh, yesterday saying uh, basically that. So, but that, that's not a big issue considering that the courts still retain jurisdiction right. to uh, strike down former regulations or interim orders, as in this case, uh, on, on a constitutional basis. Uh, but the Crown is trying to get the case dismissed on the basis of mootness, saying, well, look, the interim orders are no longer in force, and uh, if there are new interim orders uh, in the fall, well, we'll see then. New facts. So the court, after all the work we put in the case. And by the way, after two years, not just in that case, uh, but we've been, you know, um, <laughs> toiling and suffering under uh, so-called health measures for 27 months now. And we've been told by almost every superior court in the country that we should wait until the trials on the merit to know whether it were the, the whether those uh, constitute those measures were constitutional or not and now the crown is saying well no need for that at all since we suspended the measures well the court should uh, just get the cases of their books and of their rules which is to me preposterous because at some point we have to know what the constitution mandates and there is a great value in cases that are already underway and in which many affidavits, expert reports, cross-examinations have been conducted. And we, we already had a, a date set for the trial on the Bernier-Peckford case. That was uh, September 19th. And you see with all uh, the recent events, the federal court postponed the trial on the merits to October 31st, so five days uh, starting on uh, the, hall, the day of Halloween. And uh, in, in early September, we'll have to argue about the mootness. So right. the, the Crown is, uh, is uh, sticking to their guns on that issue. And uh, obviously, we think it's... You know, it's no reason at all. This suspension is no reason at all to uh, dismiss the case. So those are the, the recent events in, in that uh, file. I also am involved in uh, the Pasteur Roy case, Pasteur Roy, in uh, Saint-Augustin-des-Morts near uh, Quebec City. So that's a case where 
the community and the pastor are challenging uh, former measures uh, limiting access to religious services and uh, venues. And uh, there also, uh, the Crown is trying to get the case dismissed based on mootness because the measures have been lifted. But, you know, at some point, if the only thing the, the government has to do in order to avoid judicial sanction and judicial review of its uh, regulations or order is to suspend it for uh, suspend them for a little while it will do that all the time it's sort of a game then that's not the idea behind rule of law you know um rule of law means the government is subject to the same rules and cannot via cannot by playing games and saying well oh I'm here. Oh, I'm not there anymore. I'm here playing cat and mouse. Uh, avoid uh, getting a slap on the hand uh, some, uh, from time to time. That's not the way it works. Has it worked that way in the Pastor Roy case? In other words, they refused to grant the mootness, or is that still being? Oh, we're still waiting for the for the judgment on that. Okay. It's been argued in in late April. Mm-hmm. Um. I'm not sure at this point. I I would guess based on the civil code, the code of civil procedure, the judgment should have been issued. But it's not up to me to make a Jean Charest of myself and call the judge and ask for a judgment. You know. <laughs> so I see you. You recall that event as well. John likes to bring that up every once in a while. <laughs> well, Probably my maybe. my father told me about it. I. I I was too young at that time. What was he? Uh, Minister for Environment. I don't recall myself. Yeah. I know that never a good idea to call the office of a judge to to ask for a judgment. Yeah. Right. Okay. So it hasn't been. He might be the next, you know, uh, leader of the the conservative party. So, <laughs> well, not John. I mean, Joshua. Yeah. <laughs> no comment. Uh, all right. So, any other cases then at this point? Uh, I know that you guys have you you talked about sending out a few warning letters and things like that. Very. Um, non court uh, yes. activity. Well, interesting thing lately, uh, there is this public transportation authority near Montreal uh, who refused to um, sell advertisement space to our client, which is a, a lobby uh, that works in favor of, uh, you know, uh, low cost public transportation and uh, financially uh, affordable. Uh, public transportation and and um, the 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 ad uh, was uh, well was considered unsuitable for uh, public display because it criticized uh, purportedly um, it criticized um, public transportation just by saying that the access fees mm-hmm. were too high. So this looks a lot like a case that was uh, decided by the Supreme Court in 2009, I think, uh, Greater Vancouver. Um, honestly, I so we sent a demand letter to mm-hmm. the Public Transportation Authority, and we're waiting for their answer. But you know, it's an authority that is subject to charter. Um, requirements uh, and uh, at some point you know it's 
reasonable and polite criticism uh, mm -hmm. is is not uh, is, is, it does not equate to denigrating public transportation and obviously we, we have a, a case of obvious bias by a public authority here so if they do not accept to uh, display the ad and sell the advertisement space well they'll get a, a charter challenge in very short order that would be a freedom of expression challenge, then? Yes. That's interesting. You say that it refers back to another case, Greater Vancouver. Was it almost identical? Was it a transportation issue? Or? <laughs> yes, it was. It was basically the same thing. The, the facts are not, you know, the, the content of the ad was different. But mm -hmm. the basic rule there is that as a public transportation authority, uh, they are subject to charter requirements and they cannot pick and choose. Uh, just like recently in another case um, in out west, I think it was an ad about um, abortion, a pro-life ad that was refused. And uh, the, the public authority uh, backtracked on that after having refused. You have ideal ideologue bureaucrats that, you know, they they get the the ad proposal and they make a decision based on their personal feelings and beliefs, and they they don't necessarily have the charter in mind. But eventually, it come it comes back to haunt them, and uh, we're there for that. We are there at the JCCF and the JCCF network to haunt ideologue bureaucrats. Right on. That sounds like a great mission. <laughs> the way you expressed it. That. Well, it's great. Well, actually, I really like what the JCCF is doing, hiring people like you as sort of a network of people, you know, satellite. Uh, and yeah. uh, we have that happening because of necessity initially. But now that it's reaching into Quebec, I know when we started this podcast, John was only thinking about it. And now that you're actually there on the ground, it sounds like you're having an effect. And that's great. Thank you. Well, by the way, um, the JCCF is accepting donations for the defense of Tamara Leach. So I think I forgot to mention it earlier. But obviously, these are cases that are uh, vehemently and hotly debated by the Crown itself. And they are, uh, let's say, uh, putting a lot of res public resources in those. So we need to respond uh, in, uh, in the same fashion. Well, not with public resources, unfortunately, but you know, we have, with, with all the, yeah. the with all the the strength and the resources we can uh, gather and muster. So, if people are interested in supporting financially the defense of Ms. Leach, um, I would invite them to go to our uh, our website uh, at jccf.ca. Right on. That's the kind of thing that John does. And I suppose I should do more of, but I kind of for, always forget to ask people for money. But I'm glad you did. Thanks a lot. Okay. Well, I think we can wrap up episode 26 of Justice with John Carpe. I've been speaking with Sam Bachon of uh, the JCCF in Quebec. Thanks a lot, Sam, and I uh, hope to speak to you soon, and I'll definitely uh, let people know when your podcast is underway. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Talk to you soon.